Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loya, your host. We have entered now into that very last part of what started to unfold on Christmas Day, December 25th, and that is this period of illumination, of incarnation, of revelation, of showing forth, manifestation, of light. In fact, we end today with the beautiful exclamation of light from the event in the scripture where Jesus is presented in the temple as a baby of 40 days. He's presented to the elder Simeon who says, Now you may dismiss your servant, O Lord, for my eyes have seen the light of revelation to the Gentiles, the glory of your people Israel. So Simeon sees the light. He sees the manifestation of God. He sees the invisible made visible, just as the wise men did, the shepherds did, as John the Baptist did, the angels did, at Christ's baptism, at his birth, and now his entrance into the temple, his presentation in the temple being presented by his mother, the Virgin Mary, and also his foster father, Joseph. And Simeon sees this, as does a prophetess named Anna, and both realize that there's really nothing else to be seen on this earth. I mean, what else is there? Once you've held God in your hands, you've seen God. That is our great hope anyway, right? To enter into the next life, to behold the beatific vision, and to actually unite ourselves with the very life and nature of the Holy Trinity, to become one of those at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the eternal liturgy in heaven with all the angels and saints. That's what our expectation is. But here, Simeon already gets it on earth. Of course, it'll be in its fullness when he enters the next life. But he decided, well, what else is there to live on this earth? Because I've seen what I'm supposed to be heading towards anyway. So it's here right in my hands. And it's supposed to be that for you and I. That's why we immerse ourselves into these mysteries, into these holy days. So this is the last of the great period of illumination. Now, soon we'll start preparing for Lent. And that, of course, will be the great period of repentance. Now that we've seen the light, what do we do with it? We cleanse ourselves and let that light in 
so that we can then behold the ultimate light, the light of the resurrection. So it's a marvelous cycle that the church takes us through, through its liturgy. I don't know about you, but these things really excite me. I just love this. I just love reading and praying the liturgical text that immerses us in the mysteries of this, this beautiful cycle of Christ coming into the world, living, suffering, dying, rising, ascending, and sending the Holy Spirit. And every time I pray the divine office, I go through these deep liturgical texts and prayers, something always hits me, something anew. They're so meditative, so contemplative, so dogmatic. In fact, if you were to see my divine office books, they're all marked up because I've got all kinds of notes in them as these, these things hit me as I pray and read and immerse myself in these mysteries. I'll read something today and I'll think to myself, now, why didn't I see that last year or 10 years ago? Here it's hitting me right in the face. So the liturgical worship, the divine office of the church is deep and rich and marvelous. I just don't understand how anyone could disconnect themselves from the prayer of the church, from the church's liturgical cycle, from the holy days, from every aspect of the church's life. It's so rich and enriching, and we need it. We need it as our lifeline. We need the graces that come from that. We can't do it alone. That's part of our problem. We disconnect in varying degrees, and we think we can go it alone. Left to ourselves, we just go adrift. We need to be attached to our lifeline, and that attachment, that lifeline, comes most completely through the church and its liturgical life, its liturgical calendar. So live it, enter into it, immerse yourself into it, love it, enjoy it. Now, in our day and age, especially recently, we're hearing this phrase, toxic masculinity. There is a conspiracy, really, to neuter to debase manhood. And with that, everything that has to do with manhood, such as fatherhood and husbandhood, authority, and so on. Now, this goes all the way back to time immemorial, from the time that Lucifer fell from heaven because he was jealous of God's created order. And he attacked Adam and Eve. He attacked Adam in such a way as to debase his masculinity. In other words, Adam was given charge by God to be the steward of creation, the order of creation, to protect Eve and all aspects of creation. But somehow he fell down on the job, and evil came into the created order through the gateway, the portal of womanhood, who has the gift of receptivity, the gift of the porthole. The devil knew that, so he went to Eve instead of Adam. And so we're repeating that now in our day and age with a ferocity I don't think we've ever seen before. It's a conspiracy to just put manhood down, to make it irrelevant, to somehow obscure and even deny that God has made us male and female, and that that maleness and femaleness has a revelatory value to it. It reveals God and makes God's transcendence and his imminence present to us. It makes his receptivity and his initiative, his initiating love, it makes it present to us by virtue of being made male and female, man and woman. So we're going to look through the eyes of Eastern spirituality in terms of the value of masculinity. This is what we have to proclaim. We have to proclaim the why behind these things, the mystical why. And the Eastern churches, as I always say in this program, far from being just a museum piece or a historical study, they are good for all time, as is the Western church. See, the values, the wisdom of the church, East and West, 
has a perennial value. It's good for all time and can be applied to every age and generation. Just sometimes it's a question of how we do that, how we come up with new ways to apply old things, things that are timeless. So in the Eastern churches, when we look at masculinity or maleness in terms of Eastern Christian spirituality, its liturgy in the church, we find several things that can help us to understand why masculinity is relevant, that it is not toxic. It is part of God's revelation. It is necessary and purposeful. And we can find these things by immersing ourselves in the liturgy of the church. This is the problem of the world. That's why the American Psychological Association came out with such a ridiculous statement that masculinity is toxic. And soon after that, the Gillette Razor Company came out with a a campaign, kind of a sort of a commercial campaign about traditional masculinity being toxic, about men being the best that they could be, in other ways, being different than they are. They presume that all men act deviantly, immaturely. Yes, it did. You may have seen that. And all this is because the world is lacking from psychologists to commercials to corporations to most everything in our world. It's lacking this mystical worldview. So it really doesn't see the why behind things. If you don't see the why, then that sets you on the road to not really valuing these things or to looking at them in a very obscure way, as did our American psychologists. First of all, in the Eastern churches, we have in the priesthood a married priesthood, meaning that men who are already married can become priests. Now, already here, there is in the Eastern churches a model for wholesome manhood. Man is a priest, so he has to be called to holiness, which means he has to be holy towards his woman his wife. We call it sometimes Pandi or Matushka. There's different names for the priest's wife. They're names of, of honor and of reverence. So he models already authentic manhood in the fact that he is both priest and he is husband as well. And obviously, because he's a priest, he has to be a responsible, a holy husband to his mystical bride, the church, and also to his sacramental bride, his wife. It's not that the priest is married to two wives. He's not a polygamist. He's married on two levels, one, the sacramental, the other, the mystical. It's the same for a celibate priest, too, only he's married just on the one level, the mystical level. So the married priesthood in the Eastern churches in itself already starts to model the why and value, the purposefulness and necessity of masculinity. But along with that is monasticism. And monasticism is another way that authentic manhood is modeled. It's also a way that authentic womanhood is modeled, too. But for the male monk, he must choose heroically to rechannel his sexuality in a mystical way, to be brother mystically and father mystically. So what he does is he chooses, makes a heroic choice, to sanctify his masculinity, his sexuality, and to make it a witness that anticipates or makes present on earth what will be in heaven, In other words, that eschatological reality where we're no longer married to one another exclusively, but we all become the one bride to the bridegroom Christ in heaven. So already just in the models of married priests and also celibates in the Eastern churches, we have an indication of the mystical why of manhood and also of its modeling. 
When we come back, we're going to talk more about the Eastern churches and how that spirituality can show that masculinity is anything but toxic. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Father Loya invites you to see the new Tabor Life website. That's taborlife.org. When you land on the homepage, you can see how Tabor Life can help improve your marriage, your life, and how to see the beauty of God's created order in your personal life. On TaborLife.org, you can book Father Loya to speak to your organization about the key elements of leadership, relationships, and sexuality, as well as speak on cultural, social, and political issues. As a renowned artist, Father Loya can speak about how art, liturgy, and prayer fit together. On TaborLife.org, you can see the many ways of how you can communicate with us. And as you look to the lower right-hand corner of the page, Click on the messenger icon for live chat. And finally, Taper Life Institute is a 5013C charitable organization that earnestly needs your support. Click on the support link at the top of the page and donate. After all, Taper Life is powered by you. You're, you're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. This is Bold Talk with Father Thomas Loya. Loya. We live in strange times, full of contradictions, many of which we create and then force upon ourselves. An example. To hear the rest of this and other bold talks with Father Thomas Loya, visit TaborLife.org and go to the main menu and click subscribe. Welcome back to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loyo, your host. We're presenting a bit of a rebuttal against this new trend now of calling masculinity toxic. This is coming out from so-called experts on human behavior like the American Psychological Association, and it's being picked up commercially and on the media and TV and so on. We're answering that by presenting how the Eastern churches can present to us the why, the healthy why behind masculinity. We mentioned about the model of the priest, both married and celibate. Now, speaking of the priest, when a priest is preparing for liturgy, he puts on vestments, specific items of vestments, and he says a specific prayer from the scripture for each item that he puts on as he puts it on himself. One of the items he puts on, he says the prayer from Isaiah chapter 60. He says, I am like a bridegroom crowned, like a bride bedecked with jewels. Notice that in that line, the complementarity of male and female is included. So the priest is taking on the posture of both male and female. He is largely male. He does not lose his masculinity. But he's taking on the posture of male and female. So in the priesthood, we're seeing already a healthy complementarity. The reason for this goes all the way back to the Old Testament temple. 
where the high priest, only the high priest, entered into the Holy of Holies only once a year for the loftiest of reasons, of purposes, to offer sin offerings on behalf of himself and his people. But as he entered into the Holy of Holies, it was actually a mystical bridal chamber in which he would represent, in one sense, the bride Israel, waiting in anticipation for the coming of the bridegroom, Yahweh. And they would consummate their marriage together in the holiness of the sanctuary, their mystical marriage. We're speaking mystically here. It's very Eastern. But he also represented the masculine priesthood, the high priest, who would offer sacrifice on behalf of himself and his people. Is he stamped in the very language, the physiology of the human male body, is this sense of sacrifice, of spending himself on behalf of another. Men want to do that naturally. It's stamped in the very bodies. Their bodies are meant to take hits, to be sacrificial on behalf of someone else, largely on behalf of the bride, a womanhood. So, In the Old Testament temple, the priest modeled that aspect, that sacrificial aspect of manhood, of priesthood, and also he modeled, symbolized the bride Yahweh. So a very healthy complementarity in the office of priesthood. Well, that was picked up by the Christian priesthood, which in many churches, especially in Eastern churches, There is the Holy of Holies, the sanctuary set apart, just as it was in the Old Testament temple. And only the priest and the ordained ministers enter into that Holy of Holies. They go beyond the veil, beyond the icon screen, which oftentimes actually has a veil behind it, just like the Old Testament temple. And the ordained ministers go beyond that, once again, just like the Old Testament priest, for the loftiest of reasons to offer sacrifice on behalf of themselves and the people. It's just like the Old Testament. There's a continuity here. But now it becomes the sacrifice of the new covenant, the unbloody sacrifice. But the priest still offers himself as sacrificial as well. So he offers Christ, who is the sacrifice, and Christ himself offers himself. And the priest offers himself, just as Christ does, in the office of priesthood, especially at the liturgy. So it's all about sacrifice, making of oneself an oblation, spending oneself not just for oneself, but on behalf of others. This is very much stamped in the language of theology of male physiology. So masculinity is very, very purposeful, and it's seen in the liturgy and prayer, the church in the Eastern Christian tradition. It is so in the West as well, but today we're talking about how it is in the East. We mentioned vesting prayers in the sanctuary and sacrifice, but also the action of the priest at the altar. He faces east, ad orientum. In that way, he's facing the area, the direction of the rising sun, symbolic of Jesus Christ, the light who will come into the world and who we anticipate to come again at the last judgment, the second coming. So he faced east in anticipation of that. Once again, the priest in the Byzantine, the Eastern liturgy, is representing, as did the high priest in the Old Testament liturgy, he is representing the bride, the church, anticipating the coming of the bridegroom, Christ. In the Old Testament is Yahweh. Now it is Christ himself who comes to wed his bride on the mystical bed of the altar. So the priest, once again, is representing that complementarity. He's definitely masculine, but he also at times represents the bride. But when he turns towards the bride, towards the people, and he does so only at specific times, 
He is representing, taking on the person of Christ, persona Christi. He is also persona ecclesia, in other words, in the person of the church, the bride. But when he turns to the people liturgy, he is persona Christi. He is the bridegroom. And notice when he does, if you think about it, when does he turn towards the people? Only when he is imparting something to them. In other words, he's, in a sense, mystically impregnating the bride with the blessing of Christ, the very presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and the Word of God, the presence of Christ, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, the Trinity, through the Word of God, by preaching and reading the Scriptures. So, it is only by imparting something to the bride that the priest turns towards the bride. Otherwise, he, like the bride, is facing the same way. He's facing God. He's facing east in anticipation of the coming of God. It's like one of those famous sayings where is the bottle half empty or half full? Well, does the priest have his back to the people or is he facing east, facing the same way as the people, facing with the people, not towards the people? Well, we prefer to say he is facing with the people. Altogether, we're all facing the same way. We're facing east because together we become that bridegroom. Together we become the bride who anticipates the coming of the bridegroom. Now, also in the Eastern priesthood, there's a very strong sense of fatherhood because by nature, Eastern parishes, most anything in the East is done in smaller groupings. The West is usually larger. This is not better or worse. It's just different. In the West, as always, remember, we share fundamentally the same things. We're arriving at the same point fundamentally. We just come at it from different perspectives and with different emphasis. That's the difference between East and West. So in the East, there's a very strong sense, by virtue, almost by default, of the parish priest being father, because the community is small. Generally, we're small, very small in comparison to the larger Latin Rite groupings. In the Latin Rite, the priest is very much father as well. But in the East, it comes out especially strong only by virtue of the fact that we're smaller. So we have like a higher impact. We're, we're a little bit closer. The priest knows everybody in the church. He knows all of them by name. And there is a sense of family there. Again, it is the same in Latin Rite, but it's on a little different scale in the Eastern churches. So the sense of the priest not just being an administrator or the priest, but being father is very real in Eastern churches. And again, this underlies the importance, the relevancy, the why behind authentic masculinity. Also in the liturgy of the church, there was a strong sense, especially East, of structure and of hierarchy. And so the priest, by virtue of his priesthood, and especially when he's together at the liturgy with the bishop, the deacon, the servers, and of course, all the laity, you have a very strong sense of order, authority, and hierarchy. We even pray oftentimes in hierarchy. There's a hierarchy in heaven of the angels and dominations and principalities, the seraphim and cherubim. There's actually a hierarchy there. So in the priesthood, especially in the context of the liturgy of the church, we see that masculinity helps to preserve and point to a hierarchy of authority, the order of things. There is somebody, something that is Yes, higher or greater than ourselves. Now, we have a difficult time with that, especially as Americans, especially nowadays, because we misuse this idea of equality. We think equal means everything, everybody has to be on the same level, everybody has to be the same. Well, that's not really true about life itself. 
Not all the stars shine with the same brightness in the sky, yet that variance in brightness is exactly what makes the sky beautiful. Same thing in the church, in the order of creation, the order of the church and of hierarchy. There are certain things that are higher than other things, and that's what makes the entire beautiful order of creation in and out of the church. That's what makes it work well. And we see that embodied in the male priesthood in the church, the churches especially of the East. There is a lot more to this. The main point is masculinity is anything but toxic. It's a revelation of God. It is purposeful and necessary. And we see that in the context of the liturgy of the church. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Catholic Radio because we need the voice of the church in the public forum. We live in a time that the secular voice dominates so thoroughly that we need to get that Catholic perspective out. Just as Fulton Sheen used radio and TV in the last century, we need to continue to use this means to announce the Catholic faith in the public forum. Bishop Robert Barron thinks Catholic Radio is important. So should you. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!